Today we're going to talk about music for movies. Not composing the scores, but playing an instrument on the soundtrack. Hello and welcome to the Musician Toolkit. This is episode number 30. My name is David Lane. I'm your host and it is great to be with you once again. The interview that I'm going to be sharing with you today is a type of interview that I've wanted to have for quite some time, actually way before this podcast even got started. See, I've done some work as a film composer, and I know film composers, and we've even have talked to film composers, and we'll be doing more of that in the future of this podcast. But I wanted to talk to a musician who plays on the soundtrack itself. So when you listen to the score, you're not just hearing who composed it, who orchestrated it, and all the important work that goes into creating a film score, but I wanted to hear, I wanted to talk to one of the musicians, at least one, who gets to go into the studio and actually record the score. And one of those musicians that no doubt you have heard at least once, if not multiple times before already, is Andrew Sinewick. I'll call him a guitarist, but that's really just getting started. He has a collection of of around 100 stringed instruments, things like balalaikas, mandolins. He plays basically anything with strings, and he'll play it for various scores. So where might you have heard him before? Uh, perhaps a Pixar film like Coco, Encanto, maybe even Frozen. You know, there's a little song in there called Let It Go. Listen to the guitarist. That is Andrew playing. He also plays for scores like Live Free and Die Hard, Little Fockers, one of the sequels to Meet the Parents. But I particularly love his work on the series for Netflix, Cobra Kai. So we're going to talk about all that. We're not going to talk too much about some of the other things that he does, such as playing with artists like The Who and Barbara Streisand and Megan Trainer, but we will talk about some of his other work as well, but we're going to be focusing on what it's like to be a session musician. So what I hope you'll get out of this conversation from his story is, first of all, he'll tell you that the instrument that he considers his primary instrument, the guitar, it didn't come easy the, the way you might think for someone who's achieved on his level. It took a little time for it to click. Second, very important point that he's going to make in the conversation when he was considering what to do with his life he had a go-to goal that was understandable given that he liked to play guitar and he, and he liked playing jazz but he also knew that he needed to right away start thinking of himself as a business and he evaluates his strengths as well as his weaknesses and he comes up with a different plan and this is something important, you know, no matter what kind of a musician you are, you want to be thinking about what are my strengths, what do I have to offer? So that's a really important point. And then he's also going to talk about how he gets his early opportunities and how he builds on that and what kind of skills that he's developed and how he's gone about it over the years. So I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm very pleased to share it with you. So let me go ahead and do that. This was my conversation with Andrew Sinewick. It's my pleasure today to be talking to Andrew Sinewick. Andrew, thank you for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. So Andrew, you are a session musician. You have some experience in uh, some some pretty big projects as far as the world of television and film. Uh, and I know we're going to I'm going to ask you about Cobra Kai. You are you are the guitarist on Cobra Kai, or at least one of the guitarists. Are you the only yes. one, or are there other guys? There's a couple. I, I do most of the guitar work. Um, one of the composers is a great guitarist, so he plays some of the stuff. And then they have a friend who's a really ripping uh, shredder guitarist, so he does some you know fun, like over-the-top solo-y stuff as well. Is it Leo or Zach that's the guitarist? Zach is the guitarist. Nice, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, and then their cool. friend is Myron. Shout out Myron. He's a killer, killer guitar player. 
Nice. Uh, you've also you also play guitar on this little known song called "Let It Go" from Frozen. <laughs> yes, that is me. In fact, yeah. Um, obviously, and, and the rest of the soundtracks, but you uh, uh, quite a bit of Pixar work. You've done some uh, work on Coco and Encanto, uh, and then uh, and you've done Little Fockers. We'll we'll talk about some more of the film work that you've done. But you've also you've worked with people like Barbara Streisand and the Who, and you know definitely want to talk about that. But let's go back to the beginning. I saw on an interview uh, that you gave with with somebody else that. Um, that I think you put on your website that you didn't have an easy time getting in going with guitar. So just talk about like getting started with guitar and then how did you get to that point to where it clicked? Sure. Well, you know, this was before YouTube and, you know, the days of having everything kind of like spoon fed to you. So right. uh, I did have an older brother that played guitar, though. So that was a big help because he would kind of try and show me like, here's this riff from a Led Zeppelin song or here's this, you know, Nirvana thing or something like that. But, yeah, I, you know, I started when I was eight. And I think just the mechanics of how to hold the guitar and what the two hands did and how they work together, that took a really long time. But I just I don't know what it was. I just saw myself being a musician and I, I just put in the hours and mm -hmm. one day I it really did feel like it kind of clicked and I realized like oh okay I get it so this hand kind of does the rhythmic part and then this hand kind of does the harmonic part um yeah and it really after I figured that out um which I guess it sounds kind of so simple now that I'm uh saying it out loud but you know when, when you're a kid and yeah. Uh, what kind of, so what kind of music were you playing early on? Were you a rocker or were you into jazz or something else? Growing up, I was definitely, a, you know, a rocker. Um, it was the late eighties, early nineties. So I was, it was kind of funny cause I was sort of, um, in between like the hair metal thing and then the grunge thing that was a total reaction to it. And being so young, I didn't really understand that, uh you know it was kind of like they were two opposing forces and you sort of weren't supposed to be into both of them so i would listen to motley Crue and white snake but then nirvana and pearl jam and soundgarden kind of back to back and i thought they were both cool uh and that's actually kind of been a theme i guess for the rest of my you know musical life anyway it's just all these kind of opposing things uh that i just enjoy you know Right. It sounds like we're about the same age then. It's like, cause uh, yeah, I was in high school when Nirvana came out and <laughs> getting in, yeah. getting into that. Um, and I, I probably resisted for a long time. I thought it was just a little bit of a trend, you know, we're still going to have our glam rock and glam metal, but uh, I was wrong about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I know that uh, you've done quite a bit of like jazz guitar and, and yeah. blues. And when did that come about? Um. Well, you know, I was listening to that kind of rock stuff and then I sort of got into like heavy metal. And it's funny, I, I've always felt that there's like metal and punk and that kind of stuff is so outsider on the outskirts of the norm that it sort of shares something with jazz music and that jazz is also kind of on the periphery of what your average person on the street would enjoy listening to. Right. And so maybe there's like this weird like outsider part of me that I've sort of been drawn to anything that's a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I was just exposed to jazz, you know, in uh, school band, really. Yeah. And uh, just I would my ear was kind of drawn to that more exotic sound. And I think also, you know, being a kid and anything technical or seemingly challenging was like, oh, yeah, I want to learn how to do that. You know, your, the ego part of you is like. Uh, that sounds hard. I, I should be able to do that. Um, so so I think that kind of is what led me to jazz. Um, and then I actually had a teacher when I was about 15. There was a, a local guitar player who was a full time professional musician. And uh, when I met him and started studying with him, it was really eye opening because he was the first like he kind of pulled back the window into like, here's a working musician who's actually making a living playing the guitar. And it kind of illuminated a lot of things for me where I understood, okay, this is how it works. And, and it 
he gave me an example of somebody who was really doing it. Because until then, you know, I grew up not in an entertainment um, business family or, you know, out here and now in L.A., it's like everybody is a writer or works on a set or something like that. So it's kind of the norm. But, uh, you know, back in Maryland, it, it was kind of like, you know, you're going to be a musician. How's that going to work? You know, no one had heard of such a crazy idea before. So yeah. uh, so I met this teacher. His name's Tom Lagana, and uh, he's still there, um, really doing well and uh, playing a lot. And uh, he, yeah, I mean, he was it was really life changing meeting him. So was Tom, uh, would, would you call meeting him your spark that lets you know that being a professional musician was possible or something possible for you, something you'd wanted to do? Yeah. I mean, I think even before that I knew like come hell or high water, I'm going to be a musician, but he was a kind of like a concrete example, um, of someone who before then, up until then it was like, Oh, well, what are you you're like a rock star? Is that, you know, but here is somebody who was just a normal person who made a living playing the guitar. And um, that was something that kind of appealed to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's about a year ago that I read uh, the Bob Spitz um, biography of Led Zeppelin. You know, he also did a great, great, great job with the Beatles as well. But, you know, fairly new book that I think it came out late 2021, early 2022. And he he talks quite a bit about Jimmy Page, the guitarist for Led Zeppelin, and probably for a decade, nearly a decade before, you know, he formed the band, they did their first album. He was a very active session session player doing, you know, almost everything he can. But, you know, he worked with the Yardbirds for a while, but then uh, he also like uh, he's the guitarist on Goldfinger, <laughs> you yep. know, James Bond film. And he said he was putting in four or five, six hours a day, but all kinds of styles, just reading charts. And and he felt like when it was time to record Led Zeppelin albums, he was a pro. He knew exactly what to do. And, and he kind of had to drag, you know, uh, maybe one or two of the others along, you know, may, maybe notably John Bonham and Robert Plant. But, <laughs> right. you know, I think John Paul Jones was also a session musician. So, that yeah. really helped the smoothness of their albums. But um, when did session playing, playing for other artists, become something of an idea for you? Yeah. So, well, I, that actually goes back to my first concert was Paul McCartney. And um, they gave out a program. And in the program, it sort of listed all the different band members and things they had done. And that's when I sort of put together in my head, you know, okay, this guitar player actually... Um, you know, he also played with the Pretenders and he also recorded the theme to this TV show. And that sort of was like a light bulb moment for me. Um, but if we jump back to like, so I'm studying with Tom, I'm way into jazz. I end up at the University of Miami. And at the time I thought, well, you know, growing up on the East Coast, I just sort of always figured I would move to New York. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually went and visited with the intention of like, okay, let me scope it out and see if this is you know, the right thing for me. And I, I just kind of didn't love it. And simultaneously, I was sort of realizing that like, man, for me, I'm not sure that being like a jazz musician only is where my talents really lie. Like if you look at, if you look at the music business, which you should as a business, and, you know, you sort of have to compare yourself like, well, what is it that I do well? What are my weaknesses in comparison to what other people do? It felt like, you know, I have all this other stuff from being from growing up playing heavy metal and from playing classical guitar. I have all these other things to offer. I'm not sure that just being a jazz guitarist is the best fit for me. And that's when there was a little bit of a shift, I guess, in in my goals, you could say. Um and I sort of set my sights on being a session musician at that point and also set my sights on Los Angeles. So that shift came in college and I sort of almost did like a 180 and just really put my nose to the grindstone and studied all kinds of classic records, um, parts, sounds, really worked on my sight reading, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that's amazing. What you just said, the, that, that I want to just repeat it again. You know, you, you 
you needed to confront the skills that you had that you perceived to be strengths and find a way to use those. Because I, I think everybody who has been around, you know, has studied music, perf- you know, formally and done any kind of professional musicianship work, we've all encountered well-meaning people, some often professors and teachers, you know, that ha- have kind of a an idea of what they think they would like for you to do with your life. And, you know, you should, you should work on this. I mean, I, I had a teacher one time that was uh, all about, you know, the type of piano music that I should be playing when, when I realized that, you know, I, I really just want to do enough piano to serve being a composer, being an arranger and all the other things I wanted to do. And, and I had to, I had to accept that at some point I said, you know, I'm not going to be playing in Carnegie Hall as a pianist. It's not not the route I want to do. So I applaud you for yeah. you know making that decision. You know I don't I don't want to be a jazz guitarist. I want to you, you know not right. jazz only. I want to use that and all the other things. And you found an outlet for that, right? Yeah, and it, you know it can be some like difficult soul searching in a way, but um, I think I feel like it's worked out. I feel like I'm where I should be. Okay, so you had the idea, but then you you know, the idea needs to become reality. So, yeah. um, so what happened first? You got an opportunity or, or you moved? How, what was your journey to getting your first session work? Yeah. And I, I mean, it wasn't an opportunity. There was no gig, nothing like that. Um, I mean, I literally packed up everything I owned into my Honda Civic and headed West. <laughs> um, I, I had two guitars and I had about a dozen demo CDs which tells you what year it was that I had CDs. Um, and the demo CD was like 30 seconds of classical guitar and then quick fade out, quick fade into 30 seconds of grungy riffs, you know, like a song or something that I had played on. Quick fade out, fade into a jazz solo. You get the idea. It was maybe 10 tracks of just trying to showcase, I guess, the variety of skills that I thought I had at the time. That, that and, sounds like a very familiar format. When, uh, when I was studying film music, the, that was that was what they said. I don't know if it was a tape or, a, you know, it was a CD yeah. somewhere around there. But, yeah, it was like they're not going to listen, want to hear more than 30 seconds, you know, right. fade in and fade out and all that. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's a little different now that you can just put things online and stream them. You can even send people to Spotify and right, you know, wherever you want to go. But, but at the time, you know, that's, that's kind of what you had at your disposal. And like, so literally I'd be in a guitar store and somebody would be like, Oh, what do you do? And I'd be, here's my CD, you know, right. do you have anything for me? And I even had these um, business cards made up, which, you know, looking back, it seems so pretentious, but I had Andrew Sinewick studio guitarist. <laughs> You know, meanwhile, I just moved here, you know, but uh, but, you know, what's really funny is I would play a gig with somebody. And this is, again, in the days of business cards. You know, oh, give me your card. Yeah, man. And people go, oh, studio guitars. And I had on there like sessions via web. You know, this is 20 years ago. I had sessions online. Um, it was pretty forward thinking at the time, you know, now looking back at it, uh, sight reading. I had all this kind of stuff written down. But people would remember that and they I actually got referrals because people, you know, associated, OK, Andrew's a studio guitar player, um, even though we had just played, um, you know, a gig together. And so all these little things kind of helped. Well, that all checks out with things that I've heard over the years, you know, like one of the one of the things I heard a long time ago was take the years off of your resume, you know, like people don't need to see how long it's been since you've done right this or done that, but also um, you put yourself out there for how you wanted to be perceived, you know, and you were very clear on that, you know, it's not, yeah, you, very you, much. you weren't, you, if you had any imposter syndrome at all, you weren't letting that get in the way of how you were selling your image and so forth. So um so well, who- back in Miami, I had actually done, I'd done some touring mm-hmm. uh, with a semi, I don't know, to me, at the time, I thought it was a big gig. It was somebody who had been in a big boy band um, in the first go round of boy band sensations, and then had a solo project. And 
it just really taught me like, okay, I don't want to be like a touring guy. And then I'd also done some, you know, just like wedding work and and teaching and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure that's for me. And then it just so happened that um, kind of one of those fluke things, like quick, we need somebody to come record on this, um, this session for a huge Latin artist named Cheyenne. Um, and it was kind of like one of those, uh, we just have to finish this song so the record can get mixed. And it was like the skies parted and, you know, the earth shook or whatever analogy you want to use. It just was the greatest experience for me recording the guitars on this song. And that all kind of happened around the same time as I was like, okay, where do I fit in? What am I going to do when I graduate? So, so I had a little bit of experience and I knew enough to know what I didn't want to do which I feel like is almost equally as important as knowing what you do want to do. Right. When you moved to LA, uh, how, how long did it take you to start getting work that was, you know, really paying the bills and so forth? Yeah. Uh, I, I was lucky in that I had really one contact and, uh, it's a funny and a sad story. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, this thing you hear like, ah, kid, you got to wait for somebody to die before you get a gig in this business. And actually, uh, this one phone number I had, there was a guy named Vagar Margaison, who was an alum of University of Miami. And he was real busy at the time doing trailer music. And I called him up and said, hey, I just moved here. I'm an alum. Can can I play you my demo? And And he said, well, actually, your timing couldn't be better because the person I used to use on guitar unfortunately has passed away and i've been looking for somebody and uh so we met and i played in my demo and he's like man if you can do all this stuff and if you're still a nice guy you're gonna be just fine and actually at that time he was very busy kind of this is in the days of like custom trailers um and i think the first thing we did was oceans 12 or oceans 11 or something like that mm -hmm. and all it was was like in the beginning of the trailer, there was like a little, you know, they obviously had tempted up uh, with James Brown or something. So they wanted just a little funk guitar thing. And at the end, there was some other kind of well-known piece that you hear in a lot of trailers that was like, so temp music is, we like the sound of this, but we want you to do something similar. Uh, and so his right. job was to recreate their temp. And so the second temp was, uh, you know, some little just lead guitar solo thing. And uh, I went over to, he, he had a really nice home studio, went over there and did it in an afternoon. And it was like, whoa, I just paid my rent in an afternoon. This is crazy. So right. I was fortunate in that respect. That was kind of maybe the first or second month that I moved here. Yeah, I don't know if uh, all of my listeners are aware of this, but, you know, the, there are separate companies just for producing trailers. You know, it's not the same people making the movie, you know, that do that. And you've got, they, they outsource that. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, every now and then, like you'll get the, the film composers or the composers for the film or the series to do the music for the trailer. But a lot of times it's completely done separately. So uh, now that's changed over the years. So, and you, you've, yeah. you've been at a while, so you've probably seen, you know, different, different ways of going about it. Yeah. Um, what, so when it comes to actually doing some some films, you know, maybe maybe give us a session, an early session that you did that, and uh, maybe let's, let's also let's kind of talk about what goes into that. Like, um, well, well, I'll let you name name us a film. Uh, I mean, Frozen comes to mind, but maybe sure. something earlier than that. <laughs> or, but, um, let me think. Earlier than that, I did uh, Crazy Stupid Love. Would have been before that, Chris okay. Beck. Okay. And uh, that was a situation. There's a fantastic guitar player. He's one of my heroes. He's kind of a legend in the Hollywood film music scene. His name is George Deering. Uh, mm -hmm. He's sadly very unknown outside of this community, but he's, uh, he's right. just an incredible human being and a fabulous musician. Um, and I think, so he had been working on this film and probably something else. There was a scheduling conflict. So I came in to do a day on that. and. Um, it was it was amazing. Um, Chris has a great way of working. At the time, I think he was playing Rhodes and I was on it's a small ensemble. So it was like Rhodes, acoustic guitar, violin and maybe upright bass or something like that. Right. So what 
what do you get? What are you asked to do? So uh, you you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the phrase sight reading, you know, so sight reading, I know, is a big part of of most, if not all session players. But, you know, like, unlike maybe, uh, I don't know, like a violin, a violinist, you're probably not getting every single note written out. Uh, well, sometimes you that, are you know, getting every single note, actually. Um, oh. It's, oh, it's oh. all over the map from just give me a sound. We need a weird sound when the mom looks at the kid because it's a spooky scene to play this part verbatim. Yeah, it's it's kind of anywhere in between those two extremes. So so uh, if you don't mind, who are some of the composers that are more uh, they have the ideas exactly what they want to do? And and who are the composers who are more into allowing you to improvise? Yeah. It's actually more, I feel like it's based on the project and what it might call for. Um, right. Uh, for example, I've, I've been doing some work with Pinar Toprak, and she's mm-hmm. a fabulous guitar player. So her parts are like, sometimes I look at them and I'm like, this isn't playable. Oh, wait, it is. Man, she really knows what she's doing. I got to practice this, you know, right. and uh, and then other times uh, I just did a, a really fun, a different project with uh, Leo and Zach, the Cobra Kai composers, where it was more again, it's not it's more based on the filmmakers wishes. And what they wanted to hear was this kind of swampy New Orleans sound where it was more just the sound of a band kind of jamming and percolating and various things would come in and out. So we did a session like that where that we just got a band in a room and they had some motives written down, some motifs and uh, just various little ideas and chord structures. But we would jam and they'd they'd be like in the control room saying like, wait, do that thing again. Uh, wait, OK, actually start here and then go to there and then like just watch me. And when I wait, bring my hands up, get louder. And when I bring them down, get soft, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, those are really, really fun because it's so collaborative. So what has been your experience when when someone has written out music like uh, are, are you getting it at the session and having to sight read it or do you get anything in advance? Usually it's at the session. Occasionally there'll be things in advance. They'll send you a Dropbox link. But even that when they do, it's kind of the night before. Um, right. Yeah. Which, you know, it's good to, to glance at it, but a lot of times you don't see anything in advance. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that's tricky with guitar is a lot of people are not guitar players. And so you'll get something that is unplayable. And then mm-hmm. you have to very quickly interpret, you know, you, you sort of have to parse out, okay, what's the most important thing here? What is this? How is it activating? How, how's it functioning, you know, in this greater piece? What is my role here? And what can I pick out? that is playable that will give the effect um that i think they want right now are you often um kind of kind of like you would be in a live situation are you doing one role playing one guitar part or are there projects where you you're asked to multi-track you you know they want you to be rhythm they want you to do lead or maybe even dual lead or uh, what are you know what are some situations you've been in as far as that goes yeah, um, it's usually some combination thereof. Uh, like I think of a, a show like American Dad, uh, mm-hmm. the great composer Joel McNeely. He, uh, I mean, he, he's somebody. I mean, it's the stuff that he writes is incredible, and it's so perfectly executed that uh, we do it all live. So there's a rhythm section plus about maybe I don't know forty piece orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just incredible because he puts his hands down. It's like, whoa, I mean, the first take is is just incredible sounding. Um, but so, again, you have to consider that what that is. It's for, you know, an animated comedy. So there's a lot of like, that reminds me of the time we were in Italy. And then I have like two bars of crazy high mandolin stuff to play. Right. Um, and that's one cue. But then the next thing is like, well, that re- it reminds me of the time I was in high school in the 70s. So it'll be like some classic rock thing. Um, right. And then they go out to the woods and they want to hear banjo. So that might be all on 
on one date um, in one three-hour session. I'm playing mandolin, banjo, uh, electric guitar. And then to your question about the overdubbing, there's probably, um, uh, and we've done some overdubbing on that show where, you know, it's like, I don't know, a Foo Fighters reference or something. So the only way to do that is to get that world right. guitar sound and there'll be like a big rhythm sound and then a, a lead thing over top. Right. I, I, I guess, you know, since we kind of mentioned a few times, let's you know, let's just talk a little bit about Cobra Kai. So that, that's a show that I, I, now I love the show, but I'm whatever, whatever the opposite of a binger is uh, that, that would be me. It's like I have big droughts of where I don't watch anything. So I've only watched the first three seasons. I haven't caught up, you know, since then. I think okay. there's four and five since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a great show. I really love it. And 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 I'm almost embarrassed to say this as someone who has studied film music, written a few scores, and has has been passionate about soundtracks for most of my life. But I the first time I, I watched several episodes, I did not distinguish the score from the songs, you know, it was right. it's in so well. And, you know, and it's very, especially that first season, I think very song driven, uh, you know, epi- you know, as, as far as the music, but you, if you listen to the soundtrack, there's a lot of instrumental cues, you know, uh, you know, done by, uh, you know, the guys that we mentioned, Leo and Zach and, uh, there's a lot of guitar work going on. You know, so I yeah. I was kind of curious uh, is there is there something that you're doing more like are you doing more of the rhythm are you doing more of the lead or does it go back and forth? Uh, it goes back and forth. I uh, uh, let me think. I mean, we sort of talked about um, you know, Zach often comes up with an idea, mm-hmm. and then um, he might say he'll send me a Pro Tool session, and um, it'll have you know all the tracks. It'll have like a million synth tracks, a million drum tracks, and then like a whole bunch of guitars. Mm-hmm. And we'll go through, and they have an assistant who makes all the parts, so. There might be 10 guitar tracks and there's for one cue, there's 10 pieces of music that correspond to each guitar track. And he'll go, okay, solo that. Now that one's fine. That can stay. So yeah, let's, let's use your strat. I love the way your strat sounds like let's, let's have you play that melody. So at the end of the day, you know, people go, is that, did you do that? It's kind of like, well, I'm not sure what came out in the wash. Um, but I, I do most of it, I would say. And then they have their friend, uh, Myron, who does a lot of the heavy-duty uh, shredding stuff, although I've also done some of that fun shredding stuff. I'm not sure if that answers your question right. exactly. Right. Okay. So, but you know, like if, you know, if we're listening along, you know, and there's, you know, you hear the rhythm, the, you know, the kind of driving yeah. rhythm, but then you also hear some solo work. I, I didn't, I didn't know if like, if you and, you know, the other players kind of trade off on who does what or if. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, he'll be like, yeah. they'll say, oh, replace my solo there. That was terrible. Or they might say, and nah, I like what I did. Or sometimes they'll say replace it. And I'll go, really? It's, that's really good like don't change that you know or vice versa or he'll say that was fine and i'll be like "Eh, i I think we can beat it you know because uh you know the the nature of again getting back to people's various kind of what you have time to in the day for uh zach records his guitars direct and i'm i still prefer amps and pedals and speakers moving air and all that stuff so a lot of the stuff that he'll come over here for is like just really getting that you know, record sound of an amp moving a speaker, moving air into a microphone. So it might be that it was played okay, but maybe we can get it to sound better, or maybe I'll double what he did. Excellent. What are the what are some things that you have done? I'm, I'm going to kind of ex- expand back out. You know, you can go back to the time you were a student if you'd like. But what are things that you have done 
to improve your sight reading and to improve your practice skills to become more efficient? Well, in terms of becoming more efficient, it's kind of like you're sort of forced to, because as you get busier, I don't have time to sit in a room for six hours a day or nine hours a day. Yeah. Um, so I have to really focus on, like, for example, there was a time where I was sort of like only ever practicing on electric guitar, but then I would go to these sessions and have to play these crazy hard classical guitar things. And I just went, okay, this feels uncomfortable. I'm going to just start when I practice, I'm a morning person. so. That's usually the first thing I do is I wake up and I practice. Mm. Uh, when I do that, I'm going to make sure I'm just only playing classical guitar because it's kind of it's it's a lot easier to go from classical or acoustic guitar to electric. It just everything works easier. It's smaller. It's easier to play, easier to bend, uh, easier to get a sound out of. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, training for a marathon by running with weights or something and you take the weights off and it's easier. Uh, right. So for a long time, you know, I, I just try and pinpoint things that I take from the real world that I'm having a challenge with. And then I take that back to the practice practice room and I go, well, how can I make an exercise out of that? As someone, you know, as someone who plays a lot of genres, you know, you know, you mentioned you just mentioned classical. And of course, we've talked about jazz and rock. Um, are there certain things of the genre causes you to practice more of like, do you practice scales more for one thing, chord progressions more for another, or does it, does it just kind of, or do you just do general things that you try to apply? Um, well, sometimes I'm practicing for a certain thing that I have coming up. So like right now I have a tour coming up um, next month, uh, actually playing my own music. And mm -hmm. so it's a collaborative project. So I wrote about half the music and a few other people wrote some music. So like, for example, right now, I'm really trying to memorize all that kind of music. So that's just um, a process of putting on, I'm actually just putting on our record and going, okay, what did we do here? Um, and I have the sheet music if I need to refer to it as well. Right. All right. Just a, a couple of, uh, more questions before we get into, you know, just like some of your upcoming projects, but yeah. uh, I guess one that I'm sure my listeners will definitely want to hear, you know, you, uh, you've played on a lot of famous pieces, but, you know, I feel like, you know, working on the soundtrack for Frozen and playing Let It Go. I know this is kind of a cliche question, but you probably had no idea the impact when you played it at the time. <laughs> no idea. And that's the funny thing is that it's just an email in your inbox that says, you know, new work. Are you available this day and time? And right. if you are, you do it. And if you're not, you say, sorry, sorry, I can't make it. And uh, luckily I was available for that one. Right. Uh, I just, I had no idea what kind of impact that that movie would have and even that song in particular right now i was not the demographic for that movie so i kind of had some resistance and watching it in the first place and then you know appreciating the soundtrack but uh you know i i admitted later because i've taught that song to some piano students you know just versions of it and and i had to recognize you know it is actually musically speaking it's a very it's a very good song it gets the praise it deserves the praise that it gets and uh i mean that's just something i'm sure you're always going to be able to just tell people you meet it's like hey i played on that song right uh and then uh one more question you know just about your experience you know working your past experiences um if you're watching this on youtube you you'll see a lot of instruments be behind andrew um and I, and I have a feeling that's probably not all of them. <laughs> you, you, it's not you, all of them. It's not all of them. So when did, when did your instrument collecting begin? What's some of the instruments that you have and maybe name a few film, film scores and sessions that you've used specific instruments for? Sure. Well, uh, earlier, I think we were talking about the balalaika that I used on A Good Day to Die Hard. Okay. 
that the, yeah. And so yeah. it's a Die Hard movie. It's called A Good Day to Die Hard. Right. Uh, Bruce Willis. And I think there's, you know, he goes to Russia and there's a lot of bad Russian guys. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's an example of the composer using uh, an instrument that's unique to that region of the country. So, yeah. To, uh, you know, bring out the sound of the score, make it a little unique and play to the actual theme of the film. Right. Um, so, I mean, you get a lot of, yeah, a lot of different things I, I see. It's kind of hard to hard to tell on the screen. I see banjo. I see ukulele. I, I assume mandolin. You mm-hmm. probably got probably got everything in there. I did a lot of nylon string, like for Coco, for example. Uh, that would be a lot of classical guitar, nylon string guitar. Also, the Mexican instrument, the vihuela, uh, mm. which is sort of like a smaller nylon string guitar. And uh, yeah, that was a really fun one because it was three guitar players all in a row, kind of right. just strumming together. They really wanted that sound of like, yeah, we know we can get one person to do it three times, but it's not the same thing as three people doing it together at the same time. Now, one thing about Coco that uh, when I watched that, I the first thing I noticed, I was watching the trombone player and I was like, wait a minute, those are the actual correct positions. And I found out they used musicians for models in in the animation. So you weren't one of the models, were you? No, I think they used George and they put these cameras all over, you know, the guitar and his hands and all kinds of stuff. It's pretty remarkable uh, what they were able to do there. Yeah, that uh, I think that's my favorite Pixar film. It's, it's I mean, I love the the colors, you know, the of the of the film, and I yeah. I, I, I love the story, and of course I love the music. So, mine uh, too. It's funny when we were doing that, I was kind of uh, it was one of the ones that really touched me the most because I feel like my story was so similar to the little boy who's like, I want to be a musician, and everybody around him is like, Ah, you can't do that, kid. You'll never you know so yeah that was that was pretty touching i'm really glad i got to work on that one nice well uh you've you've had obviously an incredible career that's still going and uh you've got a lot of future projects coming out i I did want to just make mention uh you know you've got some solo work as well um you got a really nice i would say in my estimation it's mostly kind of a blues-based project with um second scene is that the name second of it? story that was yeah my previous record second yep. story <laughs> yeah with second story um and you got together some other session musicians for that so tell us just a little bit about recording that project Sure, that was a few years ago, and um, I actually, that just came about from, um, I wanted to put my own band together and start playing live more, and uh, I'm glad you called it blues, because I'm always at a loss for exactly what to call it, because it's not quite jazz, and it's not quite rock, it's somewhere in between, so right. I feel like blues is a good uh, landing spot, and uh it was really fun. I actually used two drummers at the same time because mm. I was trying to go for more of like an Allman Brothers thing. You know, Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead, Doobie Brothers, anything with brothers in it, I guess, has to have two drummers. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we used Jake Reed, who's a fabulous young drummer here in L.A., and uh, Blair Senta is the other drummer on that. And he's it's great because they're sort of... Um, uh, you know, they really complement each other well. Uh, Blair used some electronics on his drum set as well. So he had these triggers that he would run into like guitar pedals into an amp. So he'd make these sounds. I think he had contact mics, uh, which is like a little suction thing with a microphone on it that you can then plug into, you know, guitar pedals into a guitar amp and get all kinds of wild sounds. So he was sort of a little bit more doing that. And Jake was more traditional drum set guy on that one uh and then my friend fred crone played Rhodes and hammond b3 on that he's a fabulous composer 
and uh, Sean Hurley played bass, uh, known for his work with John Mayer. And he's a longtime session musician here in Los Angeles. And then we had my hero, Tim Pierce, also join us on guitar on a few songs. And we did all of it live in the studio in about six hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It has a very fresh uh, kind of live feel to it. So, yeah, yeah it's a great, great album. And that's on Spotify for anyone who wants to check it out. And uh, and you've got some other things there, too. You've got a few like EPs and singles, I believe, yeah. you know, of things. Uh, but you're doing a lot of stuff that hasn't come out yet. So uh, as yeah, much I have, a, I have the new record coming out, hopefully in the fall, um, sort of similar to the last one. Although instead of six hours, I spent a luxurious two days on this one. Uh, <laughs> and when I say spent two days, what I mean is in the studio with the musicians recording it. Naturally, there was months and months of composition time and working out the arrangements. And I actually, I always like to play a few gigs to get the music under our fingers and in front of an audience before we record. Because I find that you, you really get a sense of what works and what doesn't. Uh, so we played a few gigs at the Baked Potato. And then we went in and spent, um, I think it was Labor Day weekend last year, uh, up at a great studio called Plyer's Studio, which is run by Jim Scott who's just a great producer and engineer. He spent decades with Rick Rubin. So he's worked on Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Foo Fighters, uh, Matthew Sweet, Joe Satriani, the band Wilco, mm -hmm. just a lot of my favorite records. So um, we just saw I, Wilco in concert here pretty oh, recently. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I, I knew of him and I had always kind of like dreamed of working there or working with him. And then I saw a friend of mine actually did a record there and I, I hit him up like, hey, uh, the great bass player, Derek Frank, shout out Derek. He's uh, he's now out with Shania Twain. Uh, and I said, man, Derek, you recorded up there. That's crazy. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's, he's great. I'll, you know, I'll introduce you. So he did and uh, got in touch and it was great. So we I put a band together and we spent two days there. Uh, we rehearsed a lot. We went and played two gigs at the baked potato and then we went and spent kind of like a long weekend uh you know loaded in one day and then two days of recording uh up at jim's place and he's just got this wonder emporium filled with all kinds of instruments and amplifiers and tape machines and he's got a huge neve console and just really a really fun place and it's about 40 minutes outside of la which is kind of nice because you can't you know it's so almost feels like a destination uh vacation recording because once you're there you're kind of stuck there's you're not not running out to get coffee or running and saying hi to your buddy that lives nearby so it's kind of cool because you just really hunker down and do the work and, and we just had a blast really looking forward to uh, having people hear that that's uh, a similar kind of bluesy vein as the last record um i like to say it's sort of steeped in the classic vinyl era and it's instrumental music but the individual musicians sort of play the role of the lead singer they trade off who's going to be the lead singer so right obviously was... lots of guitar and uh there's hammond b3 the great organist carrie frank young um, organ player here in town and on bass we have Jorgen Carlson from the band Government Mule a huge uh, very popular jam band and on drums Gary Novak who's played with everybody from Chick Corea to Alanis Morissette and fabulous studio percussionist Pete Corpola uh, again we did it all live together no click just kind of looking at each other and it, that's the take I was just checking my notes. Uh, it looks like you uh, you have five a five night run coming up in the near future at Birdland in New York. Yes, and that's so that's a different project I did uh, with the great drummer John J R Robinson and a fabulous organist named Mitch Town. So um, John and I have been kicking around the idea of doing something together for many years because we see each other on sessions 
And uh, out of the blue, he sent me an email. Hey, July 11th and 12th, you're around? Let's make a record. I was like, great, <laughs> let's do it. I'm there. Uh, so this is last year. And yeah. we got together. We had a few Zoom calls, a few emails, a few texts. What's it going to be? What's the vibe? I got this idea. How about this idea? Hey, I have a good idea for an A section. Will somebody write a B section? And we came up with about, you know, 12 songs and very similar. Actually, we went in and did it all live in two days. And it, so the band is called SRT, Cinewick Robinson Town. And right. it's a killer organ trio, kind of um, equal parts Tony Williams Lifetime and maybe Jack McDuff kind of more traditional stuff. So, again, it sort of treads the line between jazz and rock and blues kind of all those things but yes as you mentioned we have a five night run at uh, birdland in new york city uh end of july i want to say july 20th is maybe the first date um so if you're anywhere nearby we're going to be in new york city going to be in upstate new york we're going to be in baltimore and i think we have something in boston although that might be a private show at berkeley that's okay. all towards the end of July. You can go to uh, srtgroove.com to find the dates. And I believe I also have them. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram, I'll definitely post them. And I, I think they're on my uh, Spotify as well. If you go to my Spotify page, you can find that out. Well, it just sound, sounds like you're you're having a lot of fun, uh, a lot of busy projects. Where can uh, our listeners follow you and keep up with what's going on? They can follow me on Instagram. I'm actually most active there, just be, I guess because it's uh, just quick and easy to uh, post a little update. I also mm -hmm. have a website. It's my name, andrewsinowick.com. Cinewick is eight letters, S-Y-N-O-W-I-E-C. Um, that website needs to get updated, but I plan on doing it very soon. Uh, also on Facebook. And uh, yeah, if you follow me on Spotify, it will alert you to... Uh, new music i actually have a new single coming out off my new record it's called late to the party and actually it should be out by the time this episode airs so find it anywhere uh fine bluesy music is streamed awesome we'll put it we'll put links to instagram facebook and spotify for sure in the show notes um well Thank you so much uh, for taking time to talk with us today. It's it's a it's a fun career that you have, and look forward to checking out your work in the future. Likewise, thank you, David. And that is going to do it for episode number thirty. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you have a private studio of any kind and you'd like to save some time on admin work and on scheduling and on billing and just take away all that headache, you need to check out Fonz. There's a free trial when you do, and you can find that link in my show notes. If you're following on YouTube, I'd appreciate it if you click the like sign for this video. And also go ahead and subscribe and, and click the notification bell if you haven't done so already. Wherever you're getting your podcast, I'd love it if you'd offer a review. Uh, and a five-star rating if that is possible. I did get notice if you're listening on Stitcher, they're about to drop that app for podcasts, but there are plenty of other podcasts, and wherever you can find it, you can find the Musician Toolkit. And I'll be back with you again next week with episode 31. So until then, thank you for listening.